0: G'day and welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Today, I'm quite excited. We've got Rachel Bernstein, who works as a therapist, and she helps people out of high control groups and highly manipulative relationships. She provides individual counseling, family counseling, sometimes group therapy, and she helps families who are trying to reach their loved ones who maybe are in a high control group or even cults. Welcome to our show, Rachel. Rachel.
1: Thank you so much, Troy. Thank you so much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: No, it's great. And and for listeners, we have done a crossover episode with Rachel where Rachel spoke to us about our experiences in high, tr- high control groups or cults as as we've certainly come to the conclusion at the end of last season that we certainly were in cults. It took us a long time to get there and to admit our part of the failure, but Rachel. Before we we do launch into to really trying to dig a bit deeper about the work that you do, tell us about your backstory. Like, how did you end up doing what you do now, working with people uh, who are coming out of you know high control groups and highly manipulative relationships?
1: Right. Yeah, it is an unusual thing to do. <laughs> so I understand the question. Well, I had a family member actually, a sibling, who got caught up in a particular group um, that is quite litigious, so I won't mention the name. Uh, there was a sudden personality shift, a liquidating of the bank account, which was minimal, but you know she had worked hard to collect what she had through odd jobs and things, and suddenly it was gone. The most chilling part was that she got involved through a friend, a new friend, who said, oh, I see that, you know, you're having issues with your family, with your parents. And I, I did too. But this group has really helped me learn how to get on better with, you know, my loved ones. And so my, uh, my father actually handled it beautifully by saying, would you mind if we speak to her parents? They called the parents and the parents said, where did you see our daughter? There was this chill that even ran down my sibling's spine. That means getting along better, means not seeing them at all. They didn't know where she was. I thought, you know, if language can be so turned around so that not seeing someone means getting on better with them, what else happens? Sort of, how do people's heads get played with in this way? And it's really unconscionable. And also that that there are groups out there that are thieves that steal people away from their family or their life or their path and kind of have no conscience about it. So when I was studying in college, I had already learned by that point, because it was dinner table conversation, which I know is unusual dinner table conversation. But I had learned that there were a lot of cults that had front groups, names that they used to pass. So it seemed like they were legitimate. And I saw them on my college campus. No one had any idea what they were. And uh, I thought, wow, this really is happening in real time. And so when I decided to become a therapist, I thought "I, I need to make sure that I make myself available in this way to people who are experiencing this. And so for the last 30 years, that's been the bulk of my private practice and my work at clinics, working with people who've experienced these sorts of things.
0: And so Rachel, do you subscribe to the, uh, to this idea of religious trauma syndrome, or do you call it something else? Can you tell us about this? Because this is something that's been thrown around a lot these days, you know, on the internet is this idea of religious trauma syndrome. And when I first heard it, I was like, wow, there's a name for what I went through. How do you feel about that that label or do you use other labels?
1: Right. So religious trauma syndrome is one label. I think, you know, when we talk about any kind of trauma, religious trauma it, certainly it, it instills so, – still so many fears. It can make you feel like um, you're doing something that is ultimately punishable by God. I think a lot of people also will call it um, really just being generally traumatized. Uh, It happens to be that it is done in a spiritual way, and it happens to be that God is entered into the mix and the equation. But I also think that when you have a situation like this, you also have a certain kind of social trauma. You, you're you disengaged from the world, from your life, from so much of what is happening that you can't really function anymore in, in society because you're not part of society. It's traumatizing all around.
2: Yeah, look, it's it's pretty crazy. And certainly um, many of our listeners and the, the people within our, our listener community on Facebook, talk about this they talk about it in different ways they use different language about the trauma they've experienced but quite often it's got a delayed onset so it'll be five years ten years with some people even 30 years after they've departed a high control group or a cult can you tell us about you know best ways to to manage the effects of this in in lay terms what can people do to actually manage what's coming up for them
1: What's so interesting about trauma is that it manifests in so many different ways. And sometimes you're aware of it and you have the language to be able to say, I'm feeling fearful and I'm not sure why I'm feeling uh, suddenly having this wave of panic don't know where it's come from, or feeling depressed. For other people, they feel it in their bodies. I mean, trauma is something that we carry around with us on a cellular level. And so sometimes people will start exhibiting headaches, fatigue, fatigue, Uh, stomach upset, which, you know, it's interesting about stomach upset and headaches. Usually that's because of a release of adrenaline in our system that is caused by a panicked thought. You know, when you have adrenaline, it actually sends more acid to the stomach to use whatever you have as immediate fuel, just as though you were in danger. So that's why a lot of people just feel sick. And also if you're starting to have certain thoughts, like hopeless thoughts, my life is never going to be better. Sort of those global senses of things that really make you feel down and um, and like and things will never look good again. There is a lot that needs to be done at that point where you can come to a therapist and talk about how you're feeling, sometimes really literally how you're feeling, and then other times be able to talk about the thoughts that have just popped into your head. And the delayed response is sometimes because it takes certain life events to trigger this idea that's still implanted in your mind and you just didn't know it was still there. And it can also take someone putting you in a position where you suddenly have anxiety and you're wondering why you used to not have that anxiety but you do now. What are you scared of and why? So a lot of people will see me right after they've left And just to kind of help them with that transition. And then I hear from them two years later, five years later, sometimes 10 years later, because something just got uncovered again that was still under the surface and they didn't realize it.
0: So, what are those things that are under the surface? What is it that you're seeing these people bring to you either at the start or later on in the journey? What are some of those characteristics?
1: Okay, so when I hear from people later on, sometimes what happens is, for example, if somebody has a job and they suddenly lose their job or they're fired, and the thought that pops into their mind is, ah, that's a punishment from God. And they're wondering why they suddenly had that as the reason that they were fired, because they haven't thought about those things in a while. And they start to review, what have they done that's been sinful, and why is God still punishing them? And so they'll call me and say, like, I think I need to tune up, basically. Other times when people are going through milestones, when they're having children and they're raising their children in a certain way, in a very different way, than they were raised in a cultic group or in a very strict religious system. And they get very punitive all too easily Or they see this little person in front of them and they think, how could the community I was raised in feel that it was okay to treat this little innocent person in a very cruel way, in a way that I would never dream of? And so they realize they have some trauma from their own moments of growing up in that environment. And now looking at their parents who they're sort of wondering why the parents were fine with that whole philosophy of kind of sparing the rod, spoiling the child. So you never know what it's going to be. But I think overall, sometimes it impacts people's sense of feeling deserving, that if they have left something that at the time they felt was really wrong to leave, but that they had reached this point of no return because what was happening there was really so wrong that they couldn't stay. Still, sometimes, again, under the surface, they have the sense of being sinful, of having something wrong with them or something punishable. And so um, it's hard for them to take on feeling confident, Uh, receiving praise, feeling proud of themselves, that all can be impacted for quite some time.
2: So, you know, for those people that, you know, they sit in that pool of shame and the sense that if they speak up, no one will understand, or even worse, they'll think they're crazy for ever being part of that. That nuttiness really is the only way we can explain it. What would you say to those people?
1: A lot of people, when they've had these sorts of experiences, They don't think it's going to translate well to the world outside, and sometimes it doesn't. And one of the things that I talk to people about is how to tell their story, how to tell it in a way that's translatable to others and so that they don't seem crazy. And if they're talking about having visions, how they can express that to a doctor, to a psychiatrist without sounding delusional, with it being something that has a a source that makes sense because it's a story that they were told um, and it didn't originate in their mind. But yeah, a lot of people will feel like they're they've lost touch with what's real and what's not. And also what are societal norms? How do people interact with each other? And, you know, people need to learn how to do that. And also, How much to share and how much not to, because when you're worried about coming across as either feeling crazy or sounding crazy, a lot of times in groups that are very controlling, you are supposed to share everything. And you're supposed to share what you're thinking and who you talk to and what you dreamt about or whatever else and any sin you've ever had. And so a lot of people will suddenly overshare and realize they can tell sort of they lost their audience or the person is sort of seeming like, oh, look, look at the time, because it was just overwhelming and odd. And so they have to learn how to say it so... They don't look bad. So they can portray it in the way that's really true, which is that they were put in a situation like this to have these sorts of thoughts and to interact with these people in this way. But it doesn't mean there's something fundamentally odd or weird about them.
0: Rachel, being in this work, I'm thinking you must get people from all different groups. And so it must be really hard for you to know what these different groups believe and, you know, all these different unique practices and beliefs. Does that play a part in what you do in your counselling? Do you, where, where do beliefs sit? What point do you tackle beliefs or do you say, actually, it's not about the beliefs. It's about these practices or these other things that have happened and you find that sort of common. Where does that journey take you and, and how mm. do you tackle that? Because it must be a minefield. And and I also know that a lot of these beliefs are set up as defenses against the very things that you're trying to lead people out of.
1: That's very interesting. Right. A couple things on that. One, sometimes people will come to me and they will start telling their story. And the group that they were in might have been a Bible-based group or it could have been the belief in UFOs or whatever it is. And they'll start talking, and I will have almost no reaction. And they think I'm either not believing them or I wasn't paying attention, but it's just that I've heard it all and then some that I have, I'm have a bit desensitized, actually, to things that are really out there. And I think the belief system only matters if there have been some things from the belief system that have gotten embedded into you that are causing you harm still to this day that are causing you to be confused about, again, if you have the right to be happier, you have the right to be treated well, or if the end of the world is coming and you really do have to be concerned about that. Things that really will keep you up at night or will sequester you and make you isolate from being social with other people. But really once you get past the things in someone's belief system that are really still kind of a toxin, the bigger issue and the bigger thing to talk about is the methods of control, the nature of the relationship between the leader and the followers, the coercion, the manipulation, the fear induction, the love bombing, the, uh, the fact that you find out that so many of these relationships are conditional and what that does to you. We can start with, and I will ask, what is still on your mind or what are the things that you're still having nightmares about or the things that are making your heart race or feeling down or feeling hopeless? Let's deal with those first and then let's zoom out. And let's look at the system that you were put in, and that it's a well-oiled machine of manipulation. And let's understand it together.
2: So, do you? And I don't know if you've you've done any analysis, or you can just speak off the cuff with this one. But do you notice a, a difference between people that were raised in these high-control groups or cults to those that were converted later in life? Like, are there characteristics that separate them? Are one easier to work with the other? Orders in the end, just being involved in one of these groups pretty much end up the same?
1: There are some similarities and there are some inherent differences. So the similarities are that if you were raised with those beliefs and also if there was abuse in the group and you had to endure it at any age, If there's something that occurred there that was really wrong or that, again, has been embedded in you because of the sheer repetition of it, and so you came to believe that that was the truth about yourself or about the world or about God, then that's going to be basically the same. The difference, though, is that for people who were born and raised in groups, it's not what they chose. And so they might not ever really have liked it or ever really thought that this was something that was really for them. So I think also when you are born and raised in a group, there, there are two other issues. One is a lot of people will say to me, I feel like I was raised on another planet. I really don't know how to be in the world even down to the smallest things about if it's okay to ask a question and what do i do in my first day of school is it okay if i disagree with the teacher or will lightning strike me and so they're just they're at that age that people leave cults when they've been born and raised in them sometimes they're too embarrassed to ask is this normal or how do i handle money for people who are raised in communal living and they've never been in a store they've never purchased anything so at age 25 how do i say to some person standing next to me how do i pay for this without seeming like i'm somehow stupid which is so unfair but people then you know isolate themselves because of it but also the other issue is that a lot of people because they didn't choose it, and because at some point they left it, they very often leave and have to leave their family there. They have to deal then with the isolation. That's why I do a support group for former cult members specifically, so they can find each other. But they also sometimes have a lot of anger and a lot of resentment with now being in the world and realizing it's not the horrible place they were told. And in fact, people are kind of nice. And so this is what they've been missing for all these years. And they can be very, very angry at their parents or grandparents or whoever it was who started this ball rolling and got them into this group. And um, so they have to deal with a lot of very difficult feelings around that.
0: I hear you saying that people having trouble paying for things or just knowing the basics of, of how to live in society. I think some, some groups are definitely like that, you know, that they, they, they take people and they engulf them, but then aren't there also groups like the ones that we were in where we do exist in society, we do exist in, in the mainstream society and yet it's still high control and it's still very cultic.
1: Can you speak Mm -hmm. to that? Yeah. So most people actually who are involved in groups that are high control are part of society. What you don't know is sort of the invisibility of it. So you don't know if the person standing next to you is seeing things the same way you're seeing them or seeing them completely differently. And if the thoughts in their heads are also very different from yours. So when people, though, are... In something that is really guiding their thinking and their belief system, and they are out and about in the world, they're, I think, sometimes needing to hold on to their beliefs even more so because there is this force around them. There are these attractions, uh, you know, things that um, could draw them out. Of this holy environment into the world and into things that are supposed to feel sort of evil and satanic. And a lot of people I talk to talk about repeating um, Bible passages in their mind when they would notice someone who they thought was attractive or they saw kids playing and they wish that they could join, but they know they're not supposed to. Um, For girls also, if they see girls wearing anything other than skirts, they really wish they could just have a normal life and wear whatever they want. And they go back into their mind almost in in that moment seeming present but really dissociating and reminding themselves of the biblical passage that will sort of keep them in line.
2: Is there a line that somebody crosses um, into that territory of harming someone emotionally or physically in any other way? Is, is there a point that is defined where you can keep a lookout for that?
1: Hmm. What happens so often in fundamentalist groups as well as just other cultic groups where you're really not allowed to have boundaries. You are supposed to be totally available in every way and not say no. That sometimes it's hard for people to define what's happening to them. They might feel uncomfortable about the way they're being treated or talked to or touched, But they haven't learned the words to describe what's happening or that there's something wrong. It's interesting. There are people who will come to me who have been abused, who have been sexually abused. They just don't know it because it wasn't called that. And so they will have symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And I'll ask them about their experiences and ask them if they've been through abuse. And they'll say no. And then they tell me what happened. And it's absolutely abuse. But what I think is also true is that people are pushed in in a lot of these environments, whether it's actual abuse or sometimes it's neglect. Sometimes people are kept from getting the medical care that they need, which is another form of abuse. And, you know, because they are really supposed to just believe in that that's supposed to cure them. I think also people are pushed physically. And sometimes people need to stay up all night um, studying the Bible, or they're supposed to be proselytizing sometimes till all hours of the night and they're not able to take care of their basic needs so people sometimes when they leave they have to learn that they matter and that their bodies matter. They have to listen to what their body is telling them it needs and follow also with what their mind is telling them uh, they need. Like they're really desperately wanting to say no, but they've been taught that they're not allowed to, but really that's what they think would be safest for them to do. So there's this conflict where sometimes you're handicapped from being able to protect yourself.
0: Rachel, one of the things that happened for us is we avoided the word cult. In terms of defining our group, the Assemblies of God, and and also Hillsong, and when we started talking to people about this this idea of that these groups were cults, we got a lot of backlash. We got a lot of pushback, and and we can understand that because we didn't like to use that label either. But when we look at the groups and we look at some of these models, it seems that they they do line up, you know. And so I guess I want to ask you, how do you feel about that term cult? And should there be other terms that we could use that are less sort of emotive? And what are some of the characteristics then, regardless of what we use, what word we use, what are some of the characteristics that people should be aware of when joining a group?
1: I try to kind of give people permission to not be mired in needing to figure out if they were involved in a cult or not, unless it's helpful to them to know it. I certainly tell the families and friends of those who are wanting to intervene to help a loved one who they think is involved in a cult to not call it a cult, at least not during the first conversation, because there's no way to understand how someone else defines that. And sometimes also it just causes so much defensiveness And then people are worried that they're going to be seen as so different because they're involved in something called a cult. But I think One of the reasons on my podcast that I use the phrase systems of control is because I think it is that sometimes within these groups, the thing that distinguishes it from healthy group is that it has total control over you, uh, over your thinking, over your belief system, sometimes over your body. And so that can happen in a relationship and it can happen in multi-level marketing and it can happen in a fraudulent teen treatment program and it can happen in a Bible-based group can happen on a mountaintop at wherever, at some ashram. And so... I don't know if it matters, but for some people, it really does help to define why it is that they're having so many after effects, why it is that for years to come, they're having trouble putting the experience behind them because it wasn't just that they were in a strict group, but they were actually in something that was akin to a cult, which does have a lot of after effects. So how would I define it? One of the ways that I distinguish a cultic group from a healthy group, first of all, is that within a healthy group, there's usually some sort of safety net. There is an ethics board, or it's part of a mainline group where you can go to someone and say, I think something's happening here that's wrong, or the leader's really gone rogue and is doing things that they shouldn't be doing and believing, wanting us to believe things that just don't seem seem quite good or healthy for us. But within a cult, there's no one to complain to, no one to go to. And 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 if you do talk to someone, it's usually someone within the group and they'll talk you out of having those feelings or they'll report what you're saying to the higher up. So it's just not safe to share your information. Also within... Uh, a cultic group, there's no questioning. The teachings are perfect. And so if you have any questions, if you want to engage in any kind of critical thinking, usually that's demonized in some way. That's the devil or that's that's evil of you. And that's going to set you astray. The other thing is the deception within a cultic group, you very often don't know from the moment that you get involved what the true intention is for you. And that how nice and wonderful it seems right now it is actually gonna be changing. Sometimes after a while and sometimes pretty quickly that the pressure is then gonna be on you and it's gonna be very easy to feel like, it's easy to fail in people's eyes. And again, your adrenaline is gonna be pumping and your whole self-concept is going to be changing and it's going to tear you away from the people outside of it or the world outside and also within a cult there's this us versus them mentality this is our group and we are good and everyone else isn't or everyone else needs salvation or everyone else is of the devil and so it makes your world very small and really separates you from the world outside. There are many other kind of examples, but I think those are those are the heavy hitting ones.
2: Now Rachel, this might seem a bit of a stretch after you know a conversation that we've just been having. But are there any redeeming features or qualities of these groups at all?
1: Right. If I'm going to look at it and be reasonable about it, uh, then yeah, first of all, the community. You don't know at the time, something that actually is very, very hurtful that, you know, I've mentioned about these connections being conditional based on if you're there and if you believe. The fact that you have a community, especially for people who have felt isolated, it feels very good. And also for people who are kind of awkward socially, they don't have to work to make a friend. They suddenly have 40 new friends standing right in front of them. And for people also who are coming from family systems that are destructive or have been dangerous in one way or another, it gives you the feeling that you're with you know, an organization that uh, really does care about you and can provide you with sort of a new family, new parents. Again, it's conditional, but at the time it feels really good. And there are a lot of people who will say, I learned some skills in my cult, I learned uh, how to work really hard. And I learned what I could endure and I learned how to do sales because I was going door to door trying to save people. And I often had a door slammed in my face. And so now I can sell anything to anyone because I don't mind having the phone hung up on me and having a door slammed. So there are probably some perks, but I don't know if they're worth the others that come with them.
0: Are there any particular people that you've worked with that stick in your memory Or trouble you to this day? I mean, obviously, we're not asking you to name them. But just generally, is there anything that stood out to you that you've gone, wow, that was intense?
1: There was a family that um, showed up in the waiting area in my office as I was leaving. In fact, they may have been there for hours. And I didn't know I was in my office doing sessions. Uh, But I went to leave and turn off the lights. And there was an entire family sitting there. And when I I was expecting it to be an empty space. I was the last one there that evening. There were about seven or eight children, all kind of dressed in whatever clothes I think the family could find. I remember little kids with sort of the wearing sweaters that had the sleeves just hanging down off their arms. Uh, Three women, two were kind of middle-aged, another one who was older. And they said, do you know where Rachel is? And I said, yes, I do. (laughs) I'm here, who are you? And they said, we've just escaped um, from a commune. It was a place run by a man named Tony Alamo, who since passed away, and he was in jail for a lot of things, a lot of things. These children had never been off the compound And these women had escaped. They had learned, one of the women learned how to drive a car. Women were not allowed to drive. Um, But she had been entrusted with going on errands with some of the men. And she would watch as she was planning her escape. She watched how you had to put the key in the ignition and what you did with your feet to make the car go and to make the car stop. She didn't have the words for what that was, but she knew one day she was going to need it. And um, she found a a car that was big enough, I think a van. And she just got everyone to come to my office. I don't know how she knew about me, but they said, we need help. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to go, but we're shell-shocked. And can you help us? So I said, come on in. (laughs) And that was uh, years of work with them. And I remember accompanying the there was a, one boy who um, was, there was mostly girls, actually there were two boys, and one boy who was 14, who had never been in school before. But he had smuggled some DVDs of high school films where there were these scenes in high schools of people going, you know, having the lockers and running down the hallway. And so he wanted to experience that. And I remember accompanying him to his first day of school so he could get used to just being around other kids and hearing the sounds and the bells and learning to raise his hand and all of it. So that family will always stay with me, certainly, certainly, certainly. And I think also there's another situation that will always stay with me where if I ever do an intervention, I do, of course, non-forceable interventions. It's really more like a conversation. And I worked with a woman who had been with a guru for about 10 years and she had become an indentured servant to him. Um, and then unfortunately a sexual partner to him, even though she was much younger. And I was prepared To help her with, uh, I brought my books and and, um, things that I wanted to hand her about teaching her about what she had been involved in and how she had been taken advantage of and really used as a servant or as a slave as opposed to um, a student of this guru. And we were sitting in a room together, and the only room the family could find for us to sit in was in a hotel. And it was sort of a conference room, it was way too big of a space for just the few of us. Um, But we took a bit of a break, and I could tell I wasn't getting through. But I just said, Why don't we take five? And would you like some tea? So I go to get up to get some tea, and I said, What kind of tea do you want? And I see her just she was like in stunned silence, and she was stuck. And I said, uh, "What kind of tea would you like?" And she said, "I, I don't, I don't know how to answer questions." And I, I thought, "Oh, okay, right," because she hasn't been asked anything. And then I said, "Well, then, should I just decide for you?" And she said, "Yes, please." And then I bring her this tea, and then she said. Actually, that wasn't the bigger issue about how I didn't know how to answer questions or that I should answer questions. It just realized that I actually haven't been offered anything. No one's done anything for me for the last 10 years. So I'm even crying thinking about it. Wow. That's the thing that got her out.
2: That, that is full on. Um, and, you know, it's it's certainly next level to many of the things that that we've experienced, but they're incredibly powerful stories. So we really appreciate you Mm -hmm. sharing those with us, Rachel.
1: Wow. That happened many years ago, but, yeah, you were right. Things do stay with you. But just a person being treated as a human being was so different from what their experience had been. That says a lot.
2: Absolutely it does. And, you know, shout out to you for the work that you do because it is – it's obviously incredibly beneficial and even just the, the two stories that you just shared, the impact that you had in people's lives is just incredible and what a privilege for you to have. We are coming to the end, sadly. We don't like to come to the end of a podcast <laughs> where we're having such a, a rich conversation but all good things must come to an end. What do you do, like some, some advice before we hear about your podcast, because we do want listeners to connect with your podcast, but what advice do you have for someone or someone who's supporting a loved one to validate their experience firstly, but also to help them step in, into a place where they can process, deconstruct and ultimately leave this harmful relationship or harmful situation?
1: Right. I think that uh, it's very important for loved ones to not get into uh, point-counterpoint, you know, needing to argue the philosophy or the theology, but instead really just helping to take care of someone's basic needs, like making them a meal and making them feel safe at home and and having them just put their feet up. Usually people who have been in groups or relationships that are controlling are the ones who do all the work, and they haven't been given permission to just sit and rest. In fact, a lot of them don't know how to do that anymore or that it's okay. And so you help them just get a good night's sleep so that you can have a conversation with them, first of all. So don't overlook the fact that they physically are probably needing a lot to rejuvenate them. And then ask them to tell you about what they believe and what they've learned and what they like about it. Start with something positive. What speaks to you about it? What does it help you with? What emotions does it help you with? Does it make you feel confident, et cetera, et cetera? Don't just start with the negative because there are always going to be some positives. Then to do what I call talking about talking. So we would like to talk to you about some of our concerns about what you've been through and we wanna make it a safe place for you to be able to talk to us, how do we do that? If we notice that we're bringing up something and you're just not ready to talk about it, will you tell us and please tell us? So sort of what are the rules of engagement so that we can talk about these things safely? And then to talk about some of the things you've heard about the group, usually people, when people are in cultic groups, They're the ones actually who have the least amount of access to the real information about it because you're kept from checking the Internet and you're kept from talking to people who have left. So people outside of it have a lot more accurate information than you do. And so here, families and friends can say, you know what, this has actually been in the news about this group. You may not want to see it. It might be too hard to look at now, but we want you to know that this exists in this group, and it's kind of respectful that we tell you this, and uh, it might be hard to hear it. And then would you mind telling us about your experiences if they were negative? And I tell families also never to say, I told you so, especially if someone got involved in something and the family was against it from the beginning. Nobody wants to hear that. And to take your time, you don't have to extract someone and and get rid of their way of thinking right away. It's a process. It takes time, just as it took time to get them into that mode of thinking. It takes time to get them out. But also and this should not be overlooked, bring fun and laughter and smiles back into somebody's life. Because usually when someone's involved in a controlled relationship or in a controlling group, their life has become very serious and they're often in survival mode or they have a mission and they haven't actually smiled and laughed sometimes for a long time. That can be very healing and reconnecting.
2: That's some really good advice. Yeah, really, really good. As actually, humor
0: is one of the things that we try to bring to our podcast all the time. Mm-hmm. Rachel, lastly, tell us about your podcast. I discovered your podcast a little while ago, and there's just so much there. You've got an amazing back catalog of people that you've talked to and experiences that you're sharing. And I think a lot of people will draw not just the content, but also the validation of their own experience. So tell us about mm-hmm. your podcast. How do we find it? How do people connect with you, et cetera?
1: Thank you. Yeah, because going back to your previous question, one of the things that helps is getting people connected to other people and having a community and uh, reconnecting with family or friends or other former members or people who have been involved in similar kinds of controlling relationships. So that was part of the impetus for my podcast so that people could hear that other people have had similar experiences. In fact, over the many years that I've done this, there were so many times that someone would tell me a story and I was happy they felt safe enough to tell me the story, but I would often have the thought... I shouldn't be the only one hearing this, that this is actually a fantastic way of teaching people about how people can be vulnerable at so many different times in their lives and for so many different reasons. And also this is a story about what helps people when they leave. And so I almost hated just to keep that information in my office you know, during a session. So the podcast is a way to help people who are going out in the world and wanna keep themselves safe and can detect when someone is trying to control them, people who are who are trying to leave something or who tend to 20, 30 years down the line are still healing. Uh, If people have an interest in wanting to tell their story on the podcast, they're welcome to be in touch with me. You can find it wherever podcasts are available to you. A lot of people listen on iTunes and SoundCloud. I post things on uh, the sites on Instagram and Twitter, et cetera, and YouTube. It's called Indoctrination with a capital I, capital N can email me at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com if you have any questions about it or can't find it or would like to be on it, actually.
0: Yeah, we're a bit excited because we were guests on your show, so people can connect with that episode. But please trust me, there's an amazing back catalogue there, folks, and it's really worth connecting with this podcast 100%.
1: Thank you you so much. Yeah, and when I first started it, my first guest was Patricia Ryan, and I did that on purpose. She's the daughter of Congressman Leo J. Ryan, who was killed at Jonestown uh, when he was trying to rescue his constituents there. And for a lot of people within our generations, that's the first time we really heard about what a cult can be and what can happen there. So as an ode to, you know, her and her family, she was the first guest. And it's just grown from there and it's been very gratifying.
2: It, it has been a pleasure, Rachel, and and we do encourage people to listen to Indoctrination. You'll certainly connect. Um, our listeners will connect with this because it, it really is a similar vein of stories and also an incredibly helpful um platform for people to be able to to tap into so thank you so much for today thank you it's, it's really been a pleasure talking to you for what has been a couple of hours with both the episodes so it's been fantastic and and thank you again for agreeing and best of luck going forward and i think we'd love to have you back on sometime because this is such incredibly helpful content for people so stand by well i'm sure we'll reach out again in in the next season
1: wonderful that's exciting i'd love it Thank you so much. Thanks, Rachel. All right, I'll see you next week, Brian.
2: See you then.